0: So, Katie did ask if you guys could turn to the book of Acts chapter 21. If you have one of the borrowed Bibles in the back, it's going to be page 542 for you. Um, I would like to start with a poem. I would like to start with a poem, and it's by Wallace Stevens. If you can bring it up on the old slideroo, the first one. There it is. Death is the mother of of beauty. This is how Wallace Stevens starts his poem. Death is the mother of beauty. I don't know how this sits with you. I don't know if you like it. Reading reviews about this poem, people are like, that's disturbing. That's stupid. So I don't know how it sits with you guys. I don't know if you like, I don't know if you think it's true that death might be the mother of beauty. You see, is Mr. Stevens saying that the event itself is what gives life its very shape? Or in his words, is it what gives life beauty? Does death give us life, give, us, give to life uh, awe or, or its stillness or even boldness? Now, I might bum some of you out by saying this, but tonight we are going to talk about death. Um, not exhaustively but hopefully enough to at least encourage us or give us some help or some, some information on the subject. And if we're honest, tonight's topic would be something that many of us would consider uh, very morbid, right? To talk about death is morbid, especially in our society. And I get it. I don't know anybody who likes to contemplate death. Nobody likes to think about this on end. I totally understand. But in truth... As this may be a topic we'd rather avoid, obviously it's a reality that we can't avoid. I would go so as far as saying about death that it consumes us without us even really noticing it. Uh, A quote that I've quoted before, but it's worth saying again by Ann Patchett. She says this, the fact is, staving off our own death is one of our favorite national pastimes. Whether it's exercise or checking our cholesterol or having a mammogram, we are always hedging against our mortality. And then C.S. Lewis gets all, you know, hot and heavy over this whole thing, and he gets super peeved when people ignore the topic of death. This is what he says. It is hard to have patience with people who say there is no death or death doesn't matter. There is death. And whatever is matters and whatever happens has consequences and it and they are irrevocable and irreversible. You might as well say that birth doesn't matter. So I fully get that this is not an appealing subject, but the Bible will not let you or I avoid it. And so as a pastor and as a friend, I would say that it's a necessary subject. I would not do anybody here justice As a pastor at this church, if we did not hit this this head on. So again, this is a necessary subject, and I would say it's necessary uh, that much more so for those tonight who have no assurance, or have no confidence, or have no idea what happens after death. If you think about it, every religion in the world answers or tries to address these two questions. How are we to see life and how are we to see death? How are we to see life and how are we to see death? And every faith system answers those two questions very, very differently. Buddhism would say to to live is to achieve uh, good karma and to die is to hope for a better reincarnation. Islam would tell us to to live is to obey Allah, and if your good outweighs your bad, then death is to achieve personal paradise. Even the faith of of an atheist. I actually was looking at a bunch of quotes today about atheism and death, and they would say this often, when I am dead, I am gone. My conscience will end, my interactions with others will end, and I will simply be gone. So then what about Christianity? Christianity. What about the faith of Christianity? I would say this is a question that even probably maybe most Christians come up short on or being able to answer, you know, with some depth. So if you're here and you're a Christian who doesn't know, or if you're here and you're not a Christian, then know this, that the Bible explains that the God of the Christian faith actually completely repurposes the terrifying narrative and curse of death. And not only death, but her siblings, suffering and pain as well. So for Christians, death is no longer something that's evil. For Christians, death was God's reaction to the evils of this world. You see, what if, what if it wasn't morbid? What if it wasn't just some morbid thought? What if death wasn't something just to push from our thoughts? What if it was something that brought deep beauty to our existence? What if it was something terrible, yes, but yet at the same time, wonderful? And what if it was something to even to even eagerly expect? Those two words, eagerly expect, Paul the Apostle in the New Testament said them in regards to both how he wants to live with honor and how he wants to die. I eagerly expect my death, he would say. So I hope to make the biblical case through tonight's episode of Paul, that, we don't, that he doesn't just see, see death as morbid, but he actually sees it as meaningful. To make a case that we cannot live the Christian life properly, church, unless we attain a solid biblical perspective on death. So we're going to witness Paul, the missionary, you know, Paul, a pastor who's like started tons of churches. We're going to witness Paul as a man go to hell and back. We've seen him go to hell and back for the cause of Christ. And we're going to watch him tonight, though, start to make final destination decisions. That's what Paul is going to be doing. We've been with him for a while now. But tonight, Acts chapter 21 is the beginning of the end in a lot of ways. And if you'll notice, again, friends, we've been in Acts for, oh dear Lord, a very long time. Two years. We're coming up on our two years of having Sunday gatherings. And so as we come up on the end of Acts, we're really coming up in a lot of ways in the end of Paul. In a lot of ways we are. So two years in this pivotal book. But tonight, I hope we notice that Paul, I mean, he's, he's pulling some stuff. Like he's getting like very evil Knievel tonight, Like, he's making some crazy stunts for the kingdom and for Jesus. So I want us to watch attentively um, as we see Paul just do, you know, he jumps over a Grand Canyon on a dirt bike in a white leather jacket. Like, he's going to do some crazy stuff. Look at verse 1. I didn't want to tell you how many verses we're doing tonight. Was it behind me? Because it's just going to bum you guys out. How many verses we're doing? Did you see, Brian, how many we're doing? Okay, good. Then it doesn't matter. It's fine. Let's keep going. Verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there, Patera. If you guys have been with us the last few weeks, in these last few chapters, what you probably have noticed is Paul has a single destination on his mind. One destination. I want to go to one place, he says, and that is Jerusalem. Like so many people here in Los Angeles who just, oh, if I could just get to California, if I can just get to the city of angels, if I could just get to Hollywood. That's something that like, happens within our city. Maybe that's something here that happens with people's hearts here. Not so much on the west side. That's more east side type stuff, but we get it a little bit, right? We understand that. That drive, that resolve, that tenacity. That is what Paul has. And so Paul just couldn't, obviously... Take a Greyhound or Jet Blue. So, sailing from port to fort, port was the fastest, most efficient way to travel. And so, Paul is traveling anxiously. Who here travels anxiously? Does anybody travel relaxed? Has anybody ever? It's traveling anxiously. And so, Paul, but imagine on a boat, dear, oh my gosh. So, Paul is freaking out. Paul is very much like Steve Martin in planes, trains, and automobiles. Remember that feeling to like, just get me there. Just get me to Jerusalem. Just get me home. That is Paul. And look at verse 1 through 4. This is basically, and you can see like Luke, the authors, you can see his sort of like journalistic approach to all this. This is just a travel itinerary. I mean, it's just details how he and his companions sail 400 miles across the Mediterranean, passing Cyprus. They, they came to Palestine and, you know, the port of um, Syria and Tyre. I mean, it's just, it's It's crazy. But then something unexpected happens in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Having sought out the disciples, so he immediately gets on land. He's like, let me find me some Christians. Sought out the disciples. We stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. If Paul is Steve Martin in plane, trains, and automobiles, this is where John Candy walks onto the scene. And if you have no idea the movie I'm referencing too much, leave now and go to a Blockbuster and rent it. And then rewind it. And just, it's so good. But it gets worse. Look at verse 8. Paul and his companions leave that port, sail towards Jerusalem still. And then verse 8, they came to Caesarea and we enter the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. You might remember him from earlier in Acts, total beast for Jesus. He's, got, he's, he's rad. Just go back and read on him in Acts 8. Look at verse 9. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, prophesied but while he was staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. So he takes off his belt. It's already super funky. I'd be running for the hill. So he takes off his belt and bounds his own feet and hands and says, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when they heard this, we... So Luke is in full agreement. You notice that? We and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So what we have here are one of those moments with the Bible where scholars and theologians, their opinions are torn. They're very torn about what's happening here. Meaning, is Paul an absolute fool for going? Paul, you've been warned. Why would you go? You were foolish. They will rock you and probably kill you. Or is Paul brave, pressing on endurance? Paul, you're the man. Like, everybody's stoked. That's the right thing you should have done, Paul. So what's the right thing to do? Maybe there's people here torn about it. See, what's crazy is, you might remember in previous chapters that Paul was compelled He said, by the Spirit. It wasn't long ago, and I'll have the verse for you, that Luke records in Acts 19, it says that Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through and eventually go to Jerusalem. So now these other Christians are saying and cautioning Paul and compelling him through the Spirit to to not go. So what are we to make of this dueling of the Holy Spirit's words? I, I can't imagine. I've heard countless stories as a pastor where... We have, you know, I'll just pick a random example. If it applies to you here, I'm not talking about you from the stage, but you'll have like a girl in a church. She's like, I'm going to date this guy. And the church will come up to him and be like, no, the Holy Spirit says don't date her. And she's like, the Spirit told me to marry him. Don't date her. And this is absolute like tearing of what the Holy Spirit has said. That's a bad example because I don't have an answer for you. I'm just telling you what happens. People do it all the time but who's correct in this situation? I don't know about the dating situation. We can talk about that later, but who's correct? Who's correct interpreting the power and presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit? Well, through my studies, I would lean heavily that both Paul and these Christian communities have heard the exact same truth. The Holy Spirit isn't giving two sets of instructions it seems more realized and agreed upon that through the Spirit in verse 4 indicates that they're saying something like this. Paul, buddy, oh pal, consider what the Holy Spirit would have you do. Paul, consider what might happen. Paul, it's dangerous. There is risk and probably more than likely death. Paul, let me tie you up with your own belt just to give you like a foretaste of what's coming. And even though Paul's in a massive rush to get to Jerusalem by the traditional feast, Paul stays seven days and multiple days at these places to pray over their concerns. He takes it seriously. But is he detoured? Not in the slightest. His safety and his comfort for his own life is not a strong enough conviction or persuasion for Paul to change course. Paul is not afraid of death. Like so many of us here are. And it changes his life. There's this classic saying that a person who is not ready to live, unless he is ready to die. Like, that's a lot like Paul. Look how Paul responds to this like John Candy situation. Look at verse 13. Then Paul answered, and this is, this is sad, Paul answers and says, what are you doing? Paul's like, what is up? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we, again Luke, his buddy, said, let the will of the Lord be done. And we'll ultimately look at verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly, gladly. When we have come to Jerusalem, when we arrived at Jerusalem, when we pulled up to Jerusalem. That's the brother of Jesus it's talking about in verse 18. He's sort of the big dog in Jerusalem and all the elders were present when Paul shows up. And he has this massive meeting. Look at verse 19. After greeting them, he related, to, uh, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And friends, this is where things go like, man, this is hard to really challenging. Paul has finally made it. Paul has made it. I'm in Jerusalem. I'm on Jerusalem soil. I'm here. He's he's smelling the ground. He's stoked. He's excited to be there. But he has to have this meeting. And Paul's before this huge crowd of peers and pastors and leaders. There's like Hillsong United playing in the background. It's like this total Christian conference. And Paul gets up there. And also, this is just cool to know. It doesn't say it in Acts, but you might geek out on it. Elsewhere in the Bible, Paul did this really beautiful thing where he got all the Gentile churches, Gentile just meaning those who aren't Jewish, all the churches as much as he could just to get this like, nice offering, financial offering together to bring to this Jewish church. So he shows up. He's like, oh, I'm here. Things are great. Here's tons of money. And he's just hanging out. And everybody is stoked. Everybody's like, praise God. Everybody's partying. This is great. And then verse 20 happens. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And, and they said to him, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, oh brother. Uh, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? Paul, Paul, they are zealous for the law. 21, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. And then James, we believe, says, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. Oh, well, I thought we were whoa, what? I had a a plan here. The Jewish leaders and believers are very nervous that Paul is there. Now, we got to get this. I just want everybody to get James, Paul, bros. They're team Jesus bros. They have not of this world t-shirts, They both listen to, like, subscribe to Matt Chandler podcast. They have moleskins. Like, they are total bros, Christian bros. Okay? But culturally, ceremonially, traditionally, they were very different. Like us in a Presbyterian church in Kansas. Or like us in a Pentecostal church in London. Brothers. Brothers and sisters, family, totally in the name of Jesus. But we operate very, very, very differently, and rightfully so. That is the beauty of the larger church. But there is a difference here in asking Paul to do something that essentially seals his terrifying fate. Look at verse 23. This is what they want him to do. This is going to backfire big time. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify them along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but you yourself also live in observance to the law. Paul, partake of this and pay for. This Levitical cleansing called the Nazarite vow. Essentially, all that means, if you want to nerd out and write it down or whatever, all that means is don't you dare drink wine or touch any sort of grapes or think about grapes or walk by grapes. Don't even, don't even, whatever grapes, don't grape it, okay? Number two, don't cut your hair until the duration of the vow is over with. Don't even think about it. We want everybody to look like Kevin. Gosh, your hair is looking good, bro. We want everybody to look like Kevin. No, just, yeah, don't cut your hair. And then don't go near dead bodies. Again, even if, you, even if you lost a loved one, you cannot go near or obviously touch this dead body. Now, I just want everybody to know, if you're new to the Christian faith or you're new to the Bible, this isn't a biblical mandate for all Christians. I don't want everybody thinking, I've got to do this. It's like, I saw some people's faces like, no, my rosé. Like, no, we're not messing." This isn't for everybody. This is voluntarily for them, you know, whatever. But Paul is only doing this to show the Jewish men and women we're good. Like, I'm going to make an effort. I'm going to submit to my, my bros, my, my friends here. He's probably also, again, thinking this is going to help minister. But what I want us to seize is something so unbelievably simple again it's an old truth. We all want new revelation, right? Give me something fresh and new, but we have a hard time really submitting to old simple truths. This is just an old simple truth. Paul's modeling over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts to now in this chapter he's modeling whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, I'll submit, and I'll go, and I'll fight, and I'll fight for us, I'll fight for unity, and I will fight for the church. There have been, I mean, this, this was pounding and resonating in my heart because as I left four months ago for a sabbatical that this amazing church gave me, I could not stop hearing these incredible stories about people who are doing whatever it takes. So again, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for modeling Paul. I would also say, what was also exposed is whatever it takes when it's convenient. Whatever it takes for Jesus, if there's like... Bubbly water there. Like, right? We're modeling it different because there's no AC in here, so you guys are awesome. But like, whatever it takes, as long as it's comfortable or if it's convenient. That is not, I would say, the way of Jesus or the way of Paul. See, what would Christian communities and churches across, what would Christian communities, what would collective church look like if each of us possessed that tenacity whatever it takes what would our apartment complex look like what would our classroom look like what would our neighborhood look like what would our family look like smell like act like be like if our determination was simply to live is christ We're very self-aware, again, that I don't have time, you know, again, for the convenience. I don't have time for the church of, or, you know, the the church. I don't have time for faith. I don't have time for discipleship. We're very self-aware. And I'm going to go out, you know, and just be firm here. But I would say if that is true, I would actually say that's a sign of an improper view of death. Thus, an improper view of life it seems that fewer and fewer and fewer are determined and satisfied in Christ. That is to live as Christ and to see death as gain. You see, if we wanted to whittle everything that we've been reading over in Acts 21 and 22, if we wanted to, to whittle it down to its most primal form, here's what it would be. And it's Paul's words to the church in Philippi. And these are such coffee mug bumper sticker words, it drives me bonkers because I don't think people know what they're drinking from, what the words mean. I, as a pastor, am just still trying to figure these out daily. But yeah, we're going to plaster them all over a, you know, a mug. Here, look at verse 20 in Philippians 1. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed of but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, But whether by life or by what? Death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose. I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul is completely viewed, my time here on earth, my life, is to pour out to my fellow brothers and sisters, to the church, for Jesus. It's beautiful. I wrote down, to remain in this life is to be poured out for Christ and doing whatever it takes, and to die is gain and is to be poured out ultimately before Christ. So, as we read that verse, I am curious, how would you answer this question, to live is blank, how would you answer that question? The majority of Los Angeles, I think we can probably all assume how the city of Los Angeles Los Angeles, if it was personified, how it would answer this question. You know, to live is literally how I want to define it. And to die is lit, you know, redunk. Like whatever, however LA would say it. Life is whatever I worked hard to make, it, and death would be the loss of all of that. To live as comfort, maybe that's here. To live as power, to live as control, to live as for her, to live as for him, to live as career, to live as my children, to live as me, to live as my parents, whatever it could possibly be. For those here who aren't Christian, who are maybe even possibly flirting with the notion of Jesus, or uh, flirting with, with Christianity itself, how would you? answer this for me to live is what if it's anything other than Christ well then if we do the math with the verse the concluding wording doesn't make a lick of sense right for example for me to live is sex drugs rock and roll then to die is less sex drugs rock and roll no sex I don't know Death is the one event which levels us all out completely. Christian and unchristian. It's the great steamroller. Tolstoy, said to be one of the the greatest writers of all time, he asked this, and this is a, a great quote. He says, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without the answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? And here it is. It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Death is the one event, one event which levels us all out completely. Death is what we can't control. So to, well actually, is it fair to say this then? That part of the reason death just sucks to talk about is because it's an affront to our autonomous society and notions. It's an offense to our autonomous society and notions because death is proof that we aren't gods. Death is proof that we are not in control. Death is proof that we are only masters of our domain and masters of the universe limited, limited destiny. <coughs> Irony being that death was brought about because of that rebellious thought in Genesis chapter 3, beginning of the Bible. See, Paul's an illustra- uh, illustration and an inspiration of what it means to live as Christ and to die as gain. Keep watching. Look at this. As Paul's wrapping up this vow, he's been there for seven days. Some Jewish people recognize him. So he's there. Jewish people recognize him and they start shouting, no, 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 no that's him. That's him. That's Paul. Get him. He has defiled the temple. Everybody get him. And he starts screaming and causing this commotion. Look at verse 27. When the, day, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Uh-oh. Prophecy coming? True. Look at verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up. All the city was stirred up. And the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. Very symbolic, right? We're finally shutting the gates and rejecting Christianity, rejecting Christ as a whole. Verse 31, and they were seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem, part of Jerusalem? All of Jerusalem was in confusion. Other translations would say in an uproar. Friends, this is a full-blown riot. And for some reason, wherever Paul goes, there's a riot. This is a full-blown, murderous rampage of anger and frustration directed at one man. I don't know about you, but I don't, what do you think was happening in Paul's mind? Crap. Total regret? Why did I, why did I should have listened? Regretting not listening to the Christians entire and at the house of Philip? Or was he thinking... Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's all this massive commotion and screaming is going on. Stones being thrown, dust being kicked up, Paul being beaten. This, it's a total like wide lens, slow motion, dramatic music effect moment. You know what I mean? Officers finally come in full-blown riot gear and are literally carry Paul away. It's so bad, like we gotta pick this guy up and, and march to steps and just get out of here. They cannot figure out what's going on. All they know is Paul is the fuse. So as they're carrying Paul, we presumably they get on the steps. And Paul is so crazy. I love it. Look what he does. Paul's stubborn determination kicks in. <laughs> Verse 39. You gotta love his spirit. Paul replied, I am a Jew. I'm from Tarsus and uh, yeah, where, where, where's I? Uh, where was I? A citizen of no obscure city. And then he goes right here. I beg you, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. I would have been like, get me to protective custody. Get me a coconut LaCroix and get me out of here. Step. I want out. But Paul's like, no, no, no. Put me down. Put me down. Put me down. I got to stop. Let me say something. Let me say, let me, let me say something. But Paul, I mean, he wants to talk to his mob, his firing squad, his squad. And I just love it. To, I mean, it speaks to a lot of what's happening in our nation, but it's this beautiful moment where love addresses hate. Look at verse 40. And when they had given him permission, the officers being like, <laughs> you're nuts. Paul standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, No, I just want everybody to, this is just, to me, a very unbelievable moment. They have to carry Paul because they can't figure out what's going on because it's so chaotic and loud. Roman officers cannot figure out what's going on. It's so chaotic and loud. So they're like, just get him out of here. We'll have to go talk to him later, but get him out. Paul stands up on the step and just does or whatever he does, and everybody shuddies. Everybody goes silent. The officers must have been standing right next to him going, who in the world is this man? And he stands there on the step, and for the next 21 verses, he does a retelling of what happens in Acts chapter 9. And he tells his story. He tells his personal story story. Out of all the things he could have shared, 10 ways to get into heaven, 10 ways to get God to to love you, uh, you know, 10 ways to, to get money and wealth from faith. Out of everything he could have said, Paul stands on the step and he cracks open his chest and he tells an angry mob his most intimate, Exposing possession he has. That is his past. I would just encourage my friends here don't ever underestimate or downplay the power of your story. Ever. Paul starts his testimony like a roll sheet of accomplishments to these people who could totally resonate with. He goes, I had everything, I was taught by the best. I met every goal and then he goes basically I count it all as rubbish not that goals and accomplishments and things are bad but in comparison to Christ I mean it's it's sidecar donuts to like Ralph's stale bread rings right Andy right that's for you like it's no comparison Sadly, though, Paul gets caught off. He's not able to finish his sermon. The Roman authors say enough is enough. They say we're not getting the truth. We have no idea what's going on. They say prepare the flogging. And as Paul sees what's going on right now, and they bring out the flogging tool, which is just a stout wooden handle, tons of leather straps coming out of it, and at the end of all the leather straps, bits of bone and metal. Basically, you either die during flogging, or you are permanently paralyzed. And so Paul sees the Roman officer, like, get them out of here. They're getting crazy again. They cut him off. They're all getting, let's, let's flog them. Paul sees us, and guess what he does? Look what he does. Look at verse 25. He wisely informs them of something. There are much debate if this was also a foolish decision, but that's for future weeks. Verse 25. But when they had stretched him out, For the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Yo, 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 bro. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? (laughs) What? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. Now, Roman citizenship legalities, like uh, legalities, whatever, are, 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 uh, they're very mysterious in this period of time. What's not mysterious about this time is that Roman citizens were exempt from interrogation by flogging or torture without trial. But more on that next week. But can you just imagine all of this? You just put yourself there. You just remember the words, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. You mean being stretched out. We have no idea how bloody and bruised he is right now. Something I had to remember very, very intimately over the four months of the sabbatical and something I would just remind us all is that if you want to avoid rejection and if you want to be liked and if you want to withdraw from criticism, then do not possess a life Of to live as Christ and to die as gain. If you want to be fully loved and fully liked by everybody, not to have any issues, not to have to work through reconciliation, to not have to forgive anybody, to be to not be an inconvenience on a Sunday afternoon in a really hot room, then do not take your soul or your faith or Jesus or the Bible or the community seriously. See, for Paul, Paul's relationship with Christ is violently, violently serious, personal, and real. Remember the first three words of Philippians 1.21. Can you bring that up again? Oh, it's back there a ways. We'll bear with him. Well, here it is. That's my fault. Sorry, bro. Here it is. The first three words. For to me. To live is Christ. For to me, for to me, for to me. Not for to my parents, not for others, not for tradition, for me. Paul can't but help, serve, preach, love, give, pray. He just can't help it. I pray that is my reality as well. And Paul does all of this fearlessly. He does it fearlessly. And we gotta remember this, and I'll say this in wrapping up this is beautiful. He does this fearlessly on the steps in the same city that even just years ago, another man was proclaiming the same message, the good news, and was executed for it. And knowing that did not choke Paul up. Knowing that did not make him bite his tongue. Actually, far more than that, Paul's Jerusalem climax perfectly parallels that of Jesus on his way to the cross. Listen to this. This is so cool. And again, if you want to nerd out on some rad parallels here, this is Jesus and Paul's parallels on the way to Jerusalem. Rejected by their own people. Arrested without a probable cause. Unjustly accused and misrepresented by false witnesses. Slapped in the face in court. We'll see that next week. It's an awesome moment. Victims of Jewish leader plots. Heard the chanting and terrifying words from the mob away with him. And each faced five trials. Paul marches into Jerusalem fearless of death because Jesus marched into Jerusalem to destroy death. It is a beautiful parallel. Truly, Christ's death is the mother of all beauty. It's only Christ's death which can take mankind's number one enemy, death, and somehow, in some crazy way, make it gain. I love these words from New York pastor Tim Keller. He just says perfectly, Jesus Christ was swallowed by death and exploded in its bowels. Church, to have a new perspective on death is one of the indicating factors that one has come to understand and apply the gospel of Jesus Christ. A massive fear of death. A massive avoidance. There's much to be learned. Christians, here is the security for the here and now. Like Paul, because of what Christ did with the resurrection and exploding in the bowels, you can see the most intense and daunting of anxiety and misery, even death itself, and taunt them by saying the words, Oh, death, where is your sting?" You We are encouraged to look at all the misery and all the affliction and all the death that this world can throw at us and go, "Where is your steam? Grave, where is your victory? You have none. Christians, here is your charge and your prayer, prayer, as it is for me. An eager anticipation of death can be seen as proof that we are most satisfied with Christ in this life. I need to wrap it up. Friends, if you are most satisfied with Christ in this life, I pray right now that you will just worship and sing your faces off. You can come to the carpet, you can stand, you can kneel, you can lift your arms. I would encourage you to worship. And if you are not most satisfied with Christ, if you are over it, if you are struggling, worship is the remedy to that. To sing, blessed be in the name of the Lord who gives and he, gives and he takes away. If you are most satisfied in Christ, come and receive the elements here in my right. And on my left, in double-stacked cups, representing what? The death of Christ. Eat them and get it into your gut that death has not just been denied, but has been destroyed by Jesus. So that you too, every time you come up here, it's a proclamation where we say, grave, where is your victory? And lastly, if you are struggling to say that to die is gain, to live is Christ, so to, to do whatever it takes, I would encourage you to allow us to pray for you. There's going to be people on that back wall and that back wall. It's not for the weak, or don't be embarrassed to go. This is so the church can be the church and intercede for one another. If you need prayer for anything, go and see these amazing people who are not going to interrogate you, they just want to intercede for you. Sound good? Let's pray.